1: Welcome to what is not really a new episode of the American Hauntings podcast. You've just got me, Troy Taylor this time, but we are getting ready to start our haunted Hollywood season back up again next week. For now, though, I just wanted to wet your whistle with a very strange story that on the surface has nothing to do with the season the podcast we're in. But at the root of it, the story actually begins in Los Angeles in the late 1800s. It's a story that you may be a little familiar with, but since it's still unsolved, I don't see any harm in revisiting it again, especially since one of you out there just might have what I'm looking for. But more about that in a moment. First, I want to mention to all of you who are fans of the podcast and of the American Hauntings Company in general that tickets went on sale yesterday for the long-delayed Haunted America Conference. As some of you might remember, we had to postpone it in 2020 for the first time in 24 years because of the pandemic. Well, we finally have a new date, and it's going to be July 23rd and 24th of 2021. We don't have as many tickets available as usual this year, since so many people decided to carry over their tickets to 2021, so if you're hoping to come to what we believe is the biggest and best ghost event of the year, we advise getting those tickets as soon as you can at ghostconference.net. But now... Let's get to the mystery that I wanted to tell you about in this episode. I love mysteries, and I think that most of you who are listening love them too. My love for mysteries does not end with ghosts. I'm always fascinated by missing people, unsolved murders, and more. And there's that category of mysteries for which we have no explanation at all. You know, the kind that are so weird you don't even know how to guess a solution. These are mysteries that have and will continue to baffle us, and most likely will never, ever really be solved. Some mysteries go beyond just being unsolved crime or odd stuff that falls out of the sky, and enter into a realm that is truly beyond just weird. As I'm sure that many of you already have heard me say, I've had a rabid interest in the unknown my entire life. As a kid, I went out of my way to track down every book and every story I could find on every kind of assorted American weirdness. But there was one story from my childhood I've just never been able to let go of. The Tombstone Thunderbird. And really, well, it's not just the bird. It's the photograph of it that I'm sure I saw. I remember being amazed by the story when I first read it. I couldn't have been more than 9 or 10 years old. It seemed impossible, but the people who saw it swore it happened. But how? How could what seemed to be a prehistoric creature like a pterodactyl be shot out of the sky by cowboys in the 1800s? It was impossible, right? But what about all the stories and the references to the event in books and newspapers? They couldn't all be lying, could they? And besides... And this was the exciting part. There was a photograph taken of it. I still remember what it looked like today. Or do I? You see, in more recent years, an even greater mystery has developed than whether or not a group of cowpokes shot down a flying monster in the Arizona desert. That mystery surrounds the elusive photograph that was taken of the incident in which many of us, myself included, believe that we saw. But if we did, where is the photo and what's become of it over the years? Well, I was determined to try and get to the bottom of it, so I started at the beginning. And it didn't start in Tombstone, where the monster became famous. It started earlier than that, traveling west to Los Angeles. The first account I could find of the flying monster that was killed in Tombstone, Arizona, was in a book called On the Old West Coast by Major Horace Bell. I was able to track down a copy of this long out-of-print title and found it to be a pretty readable and entertaining book about Bell's adventures in California in the late 1800s. On the Old West Coast was published in 1930 and edited from Bell's writings by a guy named Lanier Bartlett. But who was Horace Bell? Well, according to one other book that he wrote called Reminiscences of a Ranger, he lived and traveled throughout California, Texas, Mexico, and Central America in the late 19th century. He'd been a miner, a California ranger who pursued the outlaw Joaquin Marietta, a soldier of fortune in Mexico, an aide to General William Walker in Nicaragua, a union officer in the Civil War and on the Texas border, and finally, a newspaper editor in Los Angeles. And he may have been completely full of crap, but he promised that he wasn't. Bell considered himself a history writer, and when he also admitted to sometimes writing stories that were tongue-in-cheek, he declared that he was truthful writer about history, chronicling events as they happened. And this is why the events that he wrote about in the Lake Elizabeth area of Los Angeles and by extension, tombstone are so strange to read about today. The account in Bell's book in a chapter entitled spit in the mouth of hell does not start out to be about the creature that was killed in tombstone. Bell believed that this same creature had its origins in California. In October 1886, a Los Angeles newspaper reported on some strange events that had been occurring for years around nearby Lake Elizabeth. According to early stories from the days of the Spanish occupation of the region, the lake had long been considered a haunted place, plagued by frightening voices, shrieks, screams, and groans that apparently emanated from the lake itself. After the Spanish, the Mexican settlers refused to live near the lake. They called it La Laguna del Diablo, the Devil's Lake. In the middle 1830s, Don Pedro Carrillo purchased the land around Laguna del Diablo and built a hacienda, a barn and a corral near the water. He disregarded the superstitions about the place, but just three months after construction on his ranch was completed, he abandoned it. He publicly claimed that there were supernatural beings nearby and refused to live there. Well, the land remained idle for the next two decades. And even after the Americans came to the region, the lake was shunned as a cursed spot. Well, some years later, Don Chico Lopez settled on the property. And what occurred next was told in a manuscript by Don Guillermo Espenturo E. Mentriosa, who was a guest at the Lopez ranch. According to Don Guillermo, a great agitation took place during his visit. Around noon one day, Lopez's foreman, Chico Vasquez, rode up to the hacienda very upset. He told of strange happenings at the lake and so everyone saddled their horses and rode down to the shore. They arrived to find the lake calm and quiet and Lopez began berating his foreman for bothering them with foolishness, but then stopped as a terrifying scream came from some brush at the edge of the lake. The plants that were there along the water whipped back and forth, and the account stated that the men were so close to whatever was lurking in the brush that they could smell its foul breath. The men were startled when their horses reared up and began running in fright. As they managed to get their horses back under control, the men turned and looked back at the lake. Silhouetted against the sky was a large creature with enormous wings. The creature was flapping them frantically as he tried to rise from the mud at the edge of the water. It roared and screamed and churned up the water all around it. Well, the horses and men fled in a panic. Well, the next morning, all the vaqueros at the ranch were mustered, armed, and sent down to the lake to investigate. There was no sign of the winged monster, but it was said that the smell of it still lingered in the air. In 1883, Lopez's horses and cattle began disappearing. At first, bears or wolves were thought to be responsible, but then one night, there was a terrible uproar in the corral. When the vaqueros came running, they found that 10 mares and foals had been slaughtered. The men claimed that outlined against the sky, they saw the huge flying creature as it flapped away into the darkness. Don Chico Lopez immediately sold his property and moved away from the area. In 1886, the newspaper reported more strange happenings at Lake Elizabeth. The report stated that a creature had been feeding on cattle, horses, sheep, and chickens, and had caused terror and excitement among the local inhabitants. On one occasion, the beast had tried to devour a large steer, but as the animal bellowed and kicked, the sound attracted the attention of its owner, Don Felipe Rivera. The steer put up a fierce fight and managed to free itself. The angry creature then retreated, but not before Rivera got a good look at it. He said it was at least 45 feet long and had wings that laid flat on its back when not expanded. He pursued the monster as it started towards the lake and fired at it with his Colt revolver. Rivera said that when the bullet struck the monster's side, it sounded as if they were hitting, quote, a great iron kettle. But Don Felipe was nothing if not enterprising, and he made immediate plans to try and capture the creature and sell it to the circus. He even signed a contract with Sells Brothers who agreed to pay him $20,000 to deliver the beast to the circus alive. Well, Don Felipe never managed to capture the creature, although it was reportedly seen several times. In 1886, the creature was last seen and according to Horace Bell, was winging away to the east. And he wrote, quote, Since then, It has never been seen in its native valley because it was found and killed 800 miles from Lake Elizabeth, as is proved by the article that appeared in the Epitaph newspaper in Tombstone, Arizona. In the article that Bell saw in the Tombstone Epitaph newspaper and which was later reprinted in Los Angeles, it stated that two cowboys sighted an enormous flying creature in the Arizona desert between Whetstone and the Huachuca Mountains. The beast resembled a huge alligator with an extremely elongated tail and an immense pair of wings. According to their story, the creature was greatly exhausted and was only able to fly a short distance at a time. The men who were on horseback and armed with Winchester rifles pursued the creature for several miles before getting close enough to open fire on it and wound it. The creature then turned on the cowboys, but due to its exhaustion, they were able to keep far enough away from it until a few more shots could kill it. Well, An examination of the creature showed that it measured 92 feet in length, and that its greatest diameter was about 50 inches. It had only 2 feet, situated a short distance in front of where the wings joined the body. The beak, as near as they could judge, was about 8 feet long, and its jaws were set with strong, sharp teeth. They experienced some difficulty trying to measure the wings as they'd folded up underneath the body as the monster had fallen, but they eventually unrolled one of them and it was an incredible 78 feet in length, giving the beast a wingspan of nearly 160 feet. The wings were of a thick, nearly transparent membrane that had no feathers or hair on it. Its flesh was relatively smooth though and had been easily penetrated by their bullets. Well, the cowboys cut off a portion of the wing and took it with them, perhaps as proof of what they'd seen. After arriving in Tombstone, they spread the word of the creature and made plans to return to the site where it had fallen and to skin it. They plan, the article stated, to offer the hide to eminent scientists for examination. They returned to the site to bring the creature back to town and... (laughs) We don't know. That's where the article ends. There are no details whatsoever of the body being brought to town, and no mention whatsoever of any photograph being taken. Ah, but that wouldn't stop all of us who later claim to see it. In the years that followed, the tombstone Thunderbird, as it was dubbed, was relegated to the ranks of creatures like the jackalope. But then in May 1963, the story was revived in Saga, a men's magazine of the day. In an article, writer Jack Pearl recounted the story of the Tombstone Thunderbird, along with some large bird sightings that had been taking place in the present day of the early 1960s. Pearl not only told the cowboy story, but he went one step further and claimed that the Tombstone Epitaph had, in 1886, published a photograph of a huge bird nailed to a wall. The newspaper said that it had been shot by two prospectors and hauled into town by wagon. Lined up in front of the bird were six grown men with their arms outstretched, fingertip to fingertip. The creature measured about 36 feet from wingtip to wingtip. While this is a different variation to the story and definitely a different size of the creature, it kind of seems like it's referring to the same incident. I mean, really, how many giant flying monsters could have been shot down in Arizona in the 1880s? Well, in the September 1963 issue of Fate magazine, a correspondent to the magazine named H.M. Cranmer stated that not only was the story of the Thunderbird true, but the photo was published and had appeared in newspapers all over America. And Cranmer would not be the only one who remembered it. Eminent cryptozoology researcher Ivan T. Sanderson also remembered seeing the photo, and in fact even claimed to have once had a photocopy of it that he loaned to two associates who lost it. The editors at FATE believe they might have published the photo in an earlier issue of the magazine, but a search through back issues failed to reveal it. Meanwhile, the original epitaph story, which again mentions no photograph, was revived in a 1969 issue of Old West magazine, further confusing the issue as to whether the photo was real or not. The epitaph however stated that it did not exist, or if it did, it hadn't been in their newspaper. Responding to numerous inquiries, employees of the newspaper started a thorough search of back issues and files. They could find no such photo and even an extended search of other Arizona and California newspapers of the period produced no results. A number of articles that appeared in Pursuit, the Journal for the Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained, prompted a memory from W. Richie Benedict, who recalled seeing Ivan T. Sanderson display a copy of the photo on a Canadian television show, The Pierre Benton Show. Unfortunately, though, no copies of the show have ever been found. So is the photo real? And if not, then why do so many of us with an interest in the unusual claim to remember seeing it? Who knows? In the late 1990s, author John Keel insisted, quote, I know I saw it, and not only that, I compared notes with a lot of other people who saw it. Like many of us, Keel believes he saw it in one of the men's magazines, like Saga or True, that were so popular in the 1960s. Most of these magazines dealt with a lot of very manly stuff like cars and scantily clad girls, but they also featured adventure stories, big game hunting, Bigfoot, the Bermuda Triangle, and more. Keel also remembered the photo in the same way that most of us do, with men wearing cowboy clothing and the bird looking like a pterodactyl or some kind of prehistoric winged creature. Interestingly, a reprint of the original article that appeared in Old West magazine caused a reader to remember another strange incident. He wrote to the magazine in the summer of 1970 and gave a first-hand account of a separate flying monster incident that also occurred near Tombstone. So... So much for my idea that two separate flying monsters couldn't have been shot down near Tombstone, right? (laughs) Anyway, the writer said that he had met two cowboys who had told him about seeing a similar creature around 1890, although they had shot at and chased the creature until their horses refused to go any further. This giant bird was not killed, brought to town, or photographed, so maybe it was a different flying monster after all. Anyway, during the 1990s, the search for the Thunderbird photo reached a point of obsession for those interested in the subject. A discussion of the matter stretched over several issues of one of the best magazines that ever existed about weird phenomena, Strange Magazine, published by the late Mark Torvinsky. Readers who wrote in and who believed they'd seen the photo cited sources that range from old books to Western photograph collections, men's magazines, National Geographic, and more. Well, I was in the book business at the time and combed through literally hundreds of dusty copies of True and Saga, but could find nothing more than the previously mentioned article by Jack Pearl. If the photo exists, I certainly don't have it in my own collection, but yet I'm sure I saw it. A photo that apparently doesn't exist. So how do we explain this weird phenomenon of a photograph that so many of us remember seeing and yet no one can seem to find? author Mark Hall believes that the description of the photo created such a vivid memory in the mind that many people who have knowledge and interest in the curious and eclectic things began to think the photo was familiar. It literally created a shared memory of something that doesn't exist. We think we've seen it, but we actually haven't. Well, to be honest, I can't say for sure if I agree with this or not. I can certainly see the possibility of a memory like this that we have created from inside of our own overcrowded minds. But then again, what if the photo does exist and it's out there just waiting to be discovered in some dusty garage, overflowing file cabinet or musty basement? I, for one, haven't given up yet, and I probably never will. Over the years, after me talking about this picture, I've received hundreds of photoshopped images of cowboys and Civil War soldiers standing over and in front of a giant bird or a pterodactyl. They look too good to be true because, well, they are. But if the real Thunderbird photo was still out there somewhere, I think we'll know the real thing when we see it, or rather... If we see it, I'll keep looking and I have a feeling that I'm not the only one who will be. Well, thanks for listening to this special preview episode of the podcast. And like all our other shows, it was produced and edited by Cody Beck and was written and performed by me, Troy Taylor. And if you're not a regular listener of the podcast, we hope you'll check it out on a bi-weekly basis for a dose of history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. See the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about the podcast. If you are a regular listener, we hope you'll take the time to review us on your Apple Podcast app and share the show with your friends, neighbors, relatives, people you pass on the street, whoever. We couldn't, and we definitely wouldn't, do this show without you. For all of you who wrote to me during the holiday break impatient for new content, well, you could have had fresh shows if you were a supporter of the show on Patreon. That's not the only perk that you get, either. There are discounts, shirts, stuff in the mail, all kinds of things. For those who don't understand how important Patreon is to us, go back and listen to the first season of this podcast and then listen to this one. Yeah, that's right. That's the difference. Patreon is what made it all get better. So check it out at patreon.com, forward slash American Hauntings. And if you have any comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, the the hell with it. Why am I doing this? Cody isn't here to talk over while I try to interrupt him. So forget it. We're back next week with a new show. See ya. Dun-dun. That's the end.